0: Steve Lance, your host of the Capitol Report on NTD News. If you have not done so yet, please hit that subscribe button to stay up to date with all of the latest news coming out of the nation's capital and beyond. Arizona Governor Doug Ducey has signed the biggest border security spending package in Arizona's history. The package includes $335 million for construction of a fence and security technology along the state's border with Mexico. The current unfinished border wall sits on federal land and cannot be completed by the state, so Arizona is erecting its own barriers to control illegal immigration. In addition to the $335 million for the state border, about another $200 million will go to security enforcement. This includes paying deputies, funding for prosecuting drug traffickers and human smugglers, as well as jails and emergency facilities. The Supreme Court yesterday made it possible for the Biden administration to end another Trump era policy, remain in Mexico. What does it mean from a legal perspective, and what impact will it make to our unprecedented border crisis? Ken Cuccinelli, former Deputy Secretary of Homeland Security, joins us to explain the situation. Ken Cuccinelli, thank you so much for joining us.
1: My pleasure.
0: Ken, do you think the Supreme Court made the right decision yesterday to end the uh, Remain in Mexico policy?
1: Well, it's probably no surprise to you that I want to see the Remain in Mexico policy continue. It was one of the most effective deterrents and operational successes we had in the Trump administration in slowing and stopping illegal immigration. I will say that I've read the pieces of the, uh, um, the court's ruling And there are elements of it that, as much as uh, people like me would like to see the Remain in Mexico program remain in place, are going to really help the next Republican president who's going to be elected in November of 2024 to avoid the kind of litigation interference from outside groups that we suffered in the Trump administration um, and to do things like take down DACA. So um, there is a silver lining to this. Um, And ironically, the court did not—all the reporting hasn't made this clear—the court did not take down uh, the Remain in Mexico program. They sent it back down to the lower court to determine whether it had been properly dismantled under the APA, which is the— regulatory oversight statute. So there's more to this story coming still.
0: So Ken, what would be the counter to the majority opinion uh, supported by at least one conservative justice that states that immigration law allows the uh, federal government to end the program?
1: So um, the statute that allows for the existence of the Remain in Mexico program uses the word may. The secretary may do this. And the court perhaps not surprisingly decided that that means it's discretionary to the secretary. Now, the reason, as I noted, that it isn't over is the secretary still has to follow certain steps in making those decisions, but that he has the discretion to do it. If you'll remember, the district court said that this was being used in part to fulfill the federal legal obligation to detain all illegal immigrants until they have a hearing, and that ha- even though that language is mandatory, because the Congress has never budgeted enough money to do that, the court has not held the federal government to do it. So the district court judge said, this Remain in Mexico program finally provides a way for the federal government to comply with this detention requirement, so I'm not letting you take it down until you have another way to detain everybody. And the court said, no, you can't do that, you can't tie the two statutes together. Um, That does sort of beg the question about uh, requiring the detention based on the other statute. But one of the things the court also did was it undermined the ability of district court judges to impose injunctions. They said only the Supreme Court can impose injunctions on these immigration law statutes. Um, which, again, for the next Republican administration, is going to allow litigation to go on without impairing the implementation of a strong pro-border and, frankly, pro-deportation, because we're gonna have to deport a lot of these people who are coming in right now, um, set of policies.
0: So, Ken, uh, what tools, if any, would you say now the states have to essentially take matters into their own hands uh, to protect the uh, border?
1: Well, you know, that's a great question. They don't have any new tools because of the ruling, but there is one tool that Texas and Arizona in particular have frankly failed to use it is the ability to use, uh, to declare themselves as having been invaded under the Constitution, Article 1, Section 10, and to return people back over the border themselves. This would not be immigration law. It's actually a war power that they can respond to being invaded. But the only war power they need is to deal with prisoners, the people they catch. And again, it wouldn't be under immigration law. And yet governors Ducey in Arizona and Abbott in Texas simply refused to utilize this authority. We saw this week the Kinney County Sheriff felt like he didn't have any more Uh, options—Kinney County, Texas, sorry—and he took four uh, illegals back to the border and put them back across himself. That really should be done under the authority of the governor of Texas, and he has the constitutional power to do it. And all he keeps doing is blaming the Biden administration and saying, gee, we're doing everything. And he does a lot of photo ops, but he doesn't return people back across the border. The one critical element to make any border security program successful.
0: Ken Cuccinelli, thank you. Good to be with you. Members of Congress Elise Stefanik and Rick Crawford are introducing a bill to protect U.S. farmlands and food supply chains from foreign acquisition. During the last decade, Chinese firms bought U.S. agriculture companies and farmlands totaling millions of acres. The bill would blacklist China, Russia, Iran, and North Korea from purchasing U.S. agriculture companies and agricultural biotechnology. The proposed bill would also add the Secretary of Agriculture to the U.S. Committee on Foreign Investment. The Secretary would report and address national security risks from foreign purchases to the committee. Nicholas Eftemiades is a former intelligence official. We spoke to him about the Chinese Communist Party's covert influence and how deep it goes. He says the U.S. government has yet to develop a strategy to articulate their goals. Nicholas Eftemiades, thank you so much for joining us on the Capitol Report. Thank you. Nicholas, I want to get right uh, into the CCP's subversive tactics in the United States. How widespread do you think this is, and how do they go about it?
2: Well, let's talk about just the segment on covert influence for a minute, as opposed to the propaganda, which we see all the time. Uh, But even in the covert influence area, it's amazing how active they are, not only at the federal level which we've seen, but at the state and local levels, it's, it's really rather extraordinary. We've seen covert influence campaigns and repression of dissident organizations or democracy organizations occurring at the state level. We've seen collection, or rather at the city level, we've seen uh, collection by human sources against local politicians as well as national politicians uh, on, on a pretty grand scale. It's like nothing the United States has faced before.
0: This is very fascinating. When it comes to our political figures, you mentioned federal, uh, municipal, state level, um, does the Chinese Communist Party attempt to influence, say, um, members of Congress and their staffers and thereby influencing policy? What, what is their modus operandi?
2: Uh, yes, actually, I, I can go back 30 years and having been in the room with congressmen and um, uh, U.S. companies coming in talking about how the Chinese are pressuring them to go to their representatives, and, and it continues today. So we see the Chinese Chinese CCP practices a, a concept of encirclement, meaning— They recruit academicians, they recruit businesses, they recruit politicians, they recruit um, uh, organizations, civic organizations, business organizations. And through this this concept of encirclement, which you actually see in the game Go, uh, and and this concept goes way back to the warring states period, but through this concept, they actually get and encircle their political target— uh, so that they can ex- exact influence because they could push that person towards influencing the nation-state in a way that benefits the PPCP, CCP.
0: Now, this uh, Chinese-owned social media company, TikTok, is one of the most popular uh, in the world among young people. Um, do you see that, you know, I think the Trump administration uh, banned them or was about to. What risk do you see this uh, posing?
2: Well... This is kind of an interesting question. Uh, China's collection campaign is, as we like to call it, a whole-of-society campaign. So it's massive. Uh, And uh, according to China's uh, National Intelligence Law of 2017 and the implementation regulations of that same year, uh, any organization has to provide to China's intelligence services. They have to contribute to them. They have to support them whenever they are asked. So the question is when you're getting personal information on people, uh, on their viewing habits, on their likes, their dislikes, and you know things that that are that they say that are said at, about them, uh, what use is that to a government? Can you target people through that? Yeah, absolutely. Can you target them for political influence campaigns? Sure, that's the way it's done. Can you potentially target them to use them for some type of espionage activities or collection activities. Yes, if you're trying to collect technology and if you can develop that information that a person has access to that, is that your starting point to go after that technology? Well, for an intelligence service, it is. So this might seem like a mass amount of data and really a mass amount of data on young people. But uh, if you can sift it through artificial intelligence, which China has done phenomenal work in, Uh, then it becomes user data that that can be used for influence as well as potentially for espionage.
0: So what is the the way to fundamentally win this battle or fight this uh, war?
2: Well, uh, that's a really good question. And that is a problem because the United States government has yet to, and the same thing for our allies, have yet to develop a strategy have yet to even articulate or understand their goals. Where do they see the relationship with China in 10 years? I've asked numerous senior officials, and they don't know. They don't have good answers. And a strategy starts with that approach, understanding where you want to be you know, with China in 10 years. After that, you can arrest your way out of it. I mean, we've proven that it's just not a feasible thing. So there are a variety of things that have to be done from legislatively to trade, to counterintelligence work, to criminal activities, to simply educating, you know, those that we have in country as guests, as scholars and students. So multi-pronged approach with a unifying strategy and focused direction. Nicholas Eftemiades, thank you so much.